are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening we turn to Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 2. It is on page 998 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. We're looking in chapter 2, just at verse 13. And this is instructions Paul's writing to his apostolic designee who is ministering to the believers in this new, uh, this area of new churches in Crete. Many churches throughout the island that they are being influenced by their culture around them. And Paul is helping Titus, understand how to minister to such a people, how to encourage them, how to set things in order there, and how ultimately to, um, how to mature them in Christ. Well, we're going to read this evening verses 11 through 13 to provide some of um, the surrounding context as we consider verse 13. So hear now the word of the Lord from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. What are you waiting for? Maybe for the sermon to come to a conclusion, the package to be delivered, the car to get out of the shop, or summer break to get here, the season to start, the promotion to come, the doctor to call you back, the treatments to begin, the treatments to end, somebody to marry, the baby to come, the kids to grow up, that person to finally call you back, or those other people to finally welcome you back into their lives. What are you waiting for? Waiting is hard. Waiting reminds us that we are not in control. Waiting runs counter to the I will do something to fix it mentality that we all carry through life, particularly as Americans. That mentality that often acts as if God does not exist and it's all up to me. So waiting is hard. And we are waiting for many things all at one time. And what we're waiting for affects our lives now. If you're waiting for something dreadful, it makes your life dreadful in the moment. If you're waiting for something joyful, does it not have a tendency to make your life joyful here and now? Either way, waiting lifts our eyes beyond the moment to something in the future. There's that dreadful thing or that joyful thing, and that future thing is pulled into the here and now as you anticipate it and wait for it. It fixes our eyes on something beyond right here and right now, our current circumstances. The logic of these verses, I want to retrace it just to remind us where we are, starting in verse 11. Verse 11, he reminded us that the grace of God has come. Jesus Christ has come. 
bringing salvation. And for us, particularly verse 12, for those who look to him in faith, that grace of God, Christ himself, is training his people. He's growing his people, particularly to do, do, to do two things, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to renounce it, to turn away from it, to say, this is not who I am in Christ, but then also to live, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So we're being trained to say no to sin, to say yes to righteousness by Christ himself working in us. And then that logic now continues to verse 13. We're being trained to live in a certain way, to honor God, but this training also includes training us to wait. Being trained in our waiting. We're trained to wait. Living now involves, yes, saying no to sin, living affirmatively to God, but living now also requires us to live with a new mindset that's fixed on the future. A mindset that's fixed on something to come, on this blessed hope, as Paul calls it. This is the return of Jesus Christ, as we'll see. Christ's return and his glory is what energizes us today. We can be faithful today, looking forward to what's coming, looking forward to Christ and his glorious return. And that's what energizes us and excites us to live that self-controlled and upright and godly life of which Paul has described. We see clearly waiting does not mean sitting still and doing nothing. Waiting is fixing our eyes upon God and his promises, but being called to be faithful, to obey here and now. So in the next few minutes, I want us to follow this topography of God's word as it uncovers for us what we're waiting for. It shows us the blessed hope that is ours. I want us to lift our eyes to this great appearing, this great coming that Paul proclaims as he's helping us to see the importance of Christ's return for our lives, even today. The certainty of Christ's return heartens the Christian. It heartens us. And Paul's answering the question, what are we waiting for? So let's look at what he says we're waiting for in verse 13. He first describes what we're waiting for as our blessed hope. It's our blessed hope. Again, he's talking to believers talking to the church. This belongs only to us. It's a blessed hope only for us. What's the greatest enjoyment that you have? What do you enjoy more than anything else? Is it going to the beach and sitting and letting the sun bake your skin? I don't enjoy that. Some of you do. Is it sitting with the grandchild on your lap and holding him or her and seeing the smile upon his or her face? What's the thing you enjoy the most? Well, multiply that by 100,000 and then multiply that by 100,000 and you're starting to fathom the blessedness of the hope that is ours, the blessedness that Paul is speaking of here. It's far greater than any enjoyment you can understand now. We can't comprehend this blessedness. This word blessed, people often translate colloquially as happy. This happy Hope. And while maybe that can feel glib to us at times, I usually don't love that translation. Something feels particularly weighty, though, in this context. It is a happy hope. It's not a, a happy that, that happiness that comes in and comes out. This is an anchor to happiness, a joyful happiness. 
It's, at the very least, deliverance from hardships and trials. So often, all we can focus on are the difficulties in our lives. And at the very least, this blessedness is the removal of all of that. But it's so much more. It's so much more than we can imagine. It's blessed. It's a hope. And this ties us back to Titus 1 verse 2. We look back there where Paul's talking about his work, his, his apostolic ministry, what he's doing for the sake of God's people, God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Our faith is, is geared to grow us in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This Christian hope, as I feel like I've said a hundred times, it's not wishful thinking. It's not just, I hope that this might happen. But as we see in verse two, and we see all through all, through all of scripture, the Christian hope is a certain expectation that God will fulfill his promises. When I was in high school, I was at a funeral of a friend, a friend of mine who had very unexpectedly and tragically died. And I went to the funeral. He had professed faith in Christ before his death. And his father, though, I'm not sure, was a believer. And his father, after the, the service, the funeral service, came up to me, one of knowing I was one of the believing friends of his now deceased son. And he came up to me, tell me we're going to see him in heaven again. The grieving father, he wanted to see his son again. And I said, oh, that is our great hope that we have. And his face was filled with confusion because he didn't understand the terminology. He thought it was wishful thinking that the Christian had, but that's not the hope we have. It is a certainty. The hope we have to see brothers and sisters in heaven is sure. The hope of this blessedness of being with Christ is completely certain. It's a hope, not a pie in the sky desire, but a sure expectation of God's promises. He promises this blessedness to all of us. Look for this. Set your mind on this. Wait for this blessedness. This is a blessed hope as Paul describes it, but he moves on from there. We're waiting for this blessed hope, and he goes on to describe it in other words. The same blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God. It's a appearing in glory, a glorious appearance. This appearing is actually linked back to verse 11. We saw there the grace of God has appeared. There's been an appearing that's happened. It's already come. God's grace has come in Jesus Christ. And he has now, he's comparing that here in verse 13 to a coming appearing. This word, as I mentioned, when we discuss verse 11, uh, the English word epiphany comes from it. An arrival, coming onto the scene, something showing up. And this first arrival, the first appearance was in grace. This is Jesus Christ coming in grace, his earthly ministry, how he came humbly to save sinners, to live a perfect life, to completely fulfill the law on our behalf. He came in grace to die, to be the sacrificial lamb for his 
people, but also then to be raised in glory, to ascend to his father's right hand. All of this was done in grace for his people. Jesus even says this in John 3. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This gracious coming of Christ, this gracious appearance of Christ, his first coming, his earthly ministry was that we might be saved. How wonderful and glorious that is. But that is contrasted here to the second appearing. The appearing of verse 14 is an appearing, verse 13 is an appearing in glory. It's actually an appearance of his glory. And we see here, this is like the first appearance. This is a bodily appearance of Christ, a bodily return. But in this bodily return, he's not coming to save the world. He's coming to save his people and he's coming to judge the world because his glory demands it to judge the world and yes, to glorify his saints, bringing all of creation to its ultimate fulfillment. To move from the present age that he mentioned in verse 12 to that age to come decisively and finally Christ will bring in with him the new heavens and the new earth, that place where righteousness dwells, the place by his glory we will be transformed when we see him and we will enjoy him in blessedness forever and ever. It's a glory that is beyond all comparison. This contrast between this first and the second appearances of Christ is actually parallel or discussed, mentioned in our shorter catechism. It's not in the confession or the larger catechism, but in our shorter catechism, question 102, it asks, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? That petition, thy kingdom come. And it actually mentions three kingdoms in this answer. The first one, we are praying that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. So Satan would be destroyed. But also, we're praying that the kingdom of grace, right? This first appearing, the appearing in grace, the kingdom of grace may be, may be advanced ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it. So we're praying for the salvific grace of God to go forth and reign in people all over the world, that many would be brought into it and we would all be kept in it. But the catechism goes on to say, third kingdom, that the kingdom of glory may be, as you know, it, what is it? Hastened. And the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So we have the kingdom of Satan would be stamped out and destroyed. The kingdom of grace would fill the earth right now. And the kingdom of glory would be hastened. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's exactly the language used here. In grace, Christ came the first time. In glory, he will return. Oh, may that day be hastened. And the world will be changed when there will be thunder and lightning and trumpets. The entire world will see and this is a certainty. In the same way Christ's first coming was certain it did truly happen, so will his second coming truly occur. It will happen. It is a certainty. The entire world is waiting for this day. There's nothing else that needs to happen until that day comes as far as redemptive history. We're not waiting for a hundred other different things to happen. This could be any moment of any day where Christ returns in glory. As you think of this glory, can you not feel the weightiness of it? Can you not feel the weightiness of glory? This is not 
a docile puppy that's coming. This is the king of heaven and earth coming with a rod of iron to rule the nations, to bring judgment on all sin, to bring even judgment upon this world. This is a Jesus who's coming to act, to show himself in all radiance and all glory. And he will be so glorious that on that day, nobody will be able to deny any longer that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will fall on their knees on that day. It is so glorious, so overwhelming. It's the only response is to worship and praise, but it is a terrifying thing. It's not even Moses was permitted to see the glory of God. He asked, he had the audacity. Remember in Exodus 33, he turned to God and he said, please show me your glory. At least he had good manners. He said, please, please show me your glory, he said. He had no idea what he was asking for. God responded, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. But nevertheless, God answered Moses' prayer. He put him behind the rocks and says, I'm going to pass by and I'm going to let you see while I'm walking away from you. You can't see my face. You will die. It is so glorious, so wonderful. And that is the same glory that will not any longer be veiled when Christ returns. It is a pure glory. We will see it face to face. And that glory will destroy any impurity that it comes in contact with. No one can live unless they stand robed in Christ's righteousness, forgiven by Christ, given his righteousness. All others will see the judgment of glory. It is a return in glory. And then Paul concludes these brief words here by speaking of this being our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gets here incredibly personal for us. As he first focuses on, on the identity of Christ, who is this Christ? Who is this Jesus? This is one of the highest Christological statements in all of the scripture, where it's showing us Jesus is God, right? That's what it says, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is also God. He's our Savior, Jesus Christ. We cannot deny the deity of our Savior because to do so is to deny Scripture right here in front of us. This one who is God, the God-man, will be the one returning. This phrase, great God, is fascinating. He's just trying to, to pound the idea home to us. This is not just any God. This is the great God. And he's continuing to attack the Cretan culture with this. They have all these gods who are fighting and warring with each other. And Paul's saying, no, there is one great God. He's Jesus Christ, who has come in the flesh. He's coming in glory. Just wait. But this great God language is also connected to phraseology in the Old Testament, particularly as the Hebrews translated in Greek for the Greek-speaking Jews in Ezra 6 and Psalm 95. 
or they're particularly Yahweh. Remember that covenant name of God, the personal name of God for his people. Only they could call him Yahweh. And even then the Jews would not even like to use the term. It was so personal and so deep in meaning. That term Yahweh is connected to this phrase, great God. Yahweh, the great God. And so here, Paul is showing us Jesus Christ is the great God. He is Yahweh incarnate, Yahweh in flesh. He's the same great God who has all power and authority. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The world was made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is God who's come to die and a God who's going to come in glory. The man who has come in great humility will come in power where that greatness will be seen as far as the ends of the earth. But in this language here, Paul's not merely describing who Jesus is, but he's now describing what he has done. He's the great God. He is Yahweh, but he is Savior. His Savior, again, over and over. Paul is pounding the Cretan culture. This word Savior was the favorite word of the Cretans, so far as we can tell from archaeology and other literature, is their favorite word to describe their gods. Their gods are Savior. But no, Paul's saying there's one great God, one Savior. It is the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where it becomes personal. This one who is glorious, the one who is mighty, the one who is coming to judge the earth is also our savior. He is the one who saves us from our sin, the one who saves us from all trouble, the one who saves us from all corruption, who saves us from all of our trials and difficulties. And this is the day when we will finally experience with our entire being that Jesus is the savior. You know it now as he forgives our sins, but we will know it then as he restores everything and makes us all new. As he has assumed the entirety of human flesh, so he will redeem the entirety of human flesh. We will know with certainty Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners on that day. Not only we will know, but the entire world will know. He is the savior of his people the savior of those who look to him in faith. Oh, he's coming to show the world his saving grace and saving power. One of the most well-known preachers in the history of the church was a man named Chrysostom. You may have heard of Chrysostom. It's a Greek kind of uh, uh, jamming together a couple different words that translate roughly the golden-mouthed. He was such a great preacher, they changed his name and called him the golden-mouthed. He lived in the 300s AD and really is one of the first preachers we have in the history of the church where we have multiple sermons recorded in written form. So we know how he preached and he was what we would call today an expository preacher. He went verse by verse through the Bible, preaching it. It's incredibly insightful. And as he ends reflecting on this passage, preaching on his, this passage, one commentator says, he, no, he ceases his writing after he makes this note. For nothing is more blessed and desirable than that appearing. Words are not able to represent it. The blessings thereof 
surpass our understanding. The Christian life is characterized by waiting. Waiting, ultimately, for this. We are waiting, but not waiting and doing nothing, but we're letting that inspire us. We're meditating upon the coming and return of Christ, growing in anticipation of it. As we have the mountains and the valleys of life, we are tethered to this certain hope that we have, not allowing us to get too high or to get too low because there is a certain outcome to all of this. Christ is coming. And we ought to remain steadfast on this future reality. Indeed, Christ is training you to fix your eyes upon Christ's return. And that day and all that he will bring on that day. This is an encouragement to us in times of difficulty, is it not? In those moments where we feel the waves of the world are just knocking us down over and over, we can't seem to get up. Frankly, I feel that way with three little kids at home many days. What gives us hope? Christ is coming. Christ will make everything right. He will make all things new. He's coming in glory. All of this is so deeply encouraging for us as God's people, but it is only encouraging if you are one of God's children. He promises to save all who trust in him. So we are called to stop striving, stop being a fix-it guy, thinking the world is on your shoulders. Stop trying to cover over your sin and pretend you have it all together and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope for forgiveness and eternal life. Come to the great God and Savior Jesus Christ before that final day because then it will be too late. We all will grow in hope. All of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, we will grow in hope. Our hearts will be set aflame by waiting upon Jesus Christ. This appearing of his, this blessed hope, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we all pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's look to him in prayer. Gracious God, we do pray that Jesus Christ would come quickly. Oh, Father, may you care for us and tend to us until that day. We thank you for the promise that not one can be plucked from the hand of our Savior. We know that we are going through trials as if through fire, purifying us for that day of Christ's return. Help us, train us to fix our eyes upon it, to wait with patience, to wait in such a way that allows us now to live in self-controlled, upright, and godly ways for your glory and the good of all of your people. Oh Lord, help us. We believe, oh Lord, but help our unbelief as we fix our eyes upon the risen and soon to be coming Savior. In his great name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.